This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 8th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. What are the implications of China's emergence as a military and economic power? And how should the foreign policy establishment in Washington think about it? Justin Logan, director of the Cato Institute's Foreign Policy Studies, makes his case in a new policy analysis, China, America, and the Pivot to Asia. We spoke yesterday. To say that the United States is engaged in a process of a pivot toward Asia, what, is that, what does that even mean? Well, it's maybe a little bit inside baseball and wonky, but it's, it's, it's interesting enough, hopefully, to our podcast listeners to get into. It originally was rolled out as the idea of a pivot to Asia, and so I've uh, stuck with that formulation, although it's been rebranded as a rebalancing to Asia because certain parties in international politics were concerned and took some umbrage because a pivot, after all, when you pivot, you're turning towards something but away from something else. And some of our friends and clients uh, in international politics were very, very uh, displeased by the idea that America's back would be turned uh, on them. So it was pivoted as a rebalancing. So in a rebalancing, you don't turn your back on anywhere. But it is an interesting idea. I was at a meeting of Asia experts in the think tank community a couple of weeks ago, and there was broad consensus on two points. The first point was that pretty much everyone in town favored the idea of a pivot to Asia or rebalancing. And the second point on which there was broad consensus was that nobody could exactly put his finger on what the pivot rebalancing was. So that to you know uh, uh, somebody like me is a little unnerving that there's broad consensus in town about an idea that nobody can really pin down. But as I treat it in the paper um, is basically the idea that the United States would be dedicating greater attention in particular to security issues uh, in East Asia and to a certain lesser extent through to the Indian Ocean region. So I deal pretty much exclusively with the security issues, as is uh, my want here at Cato, uh, entailed in a so-called pivot or rebalancing. So with respect to our relationship with China, they're a major trading partner. They will continue to be a major trading partner. In fact, trade will likely expand between the United States and China for a long time. They have the weird status of being, in some respects, a military competitor but and also a banker uh, for allowing the United States to spend a great deal of money on all sorts of different programs, including our military. Sure, spend a great deal of money that we don't have right now. Um, So it's right. What makes this case interesting, everybody uses the sort of Cold War dichotomy uh, when it comes to sort of great power politics uh, in the 21st century. And of course, the alternatives, uh, as they sort of emerged strategically in the the 20th century, were containment on the one hand, which the United States and its allies applied to the Soviet Union. uh, And then on the other hand, engagement. And so these are the sort of two broad stroke uh, strategic orientations that uh, really get deployed in conversations about U.S. policy toward China. And what I argue in the paper is that U.S. strategy toward China doesn't fit neatly in either one of those categories and, in fact, uh, takes elements from both of those categories. So the United States, on the one hand, is not categorically engaged in a containment policy of China for the very simple fact that it is quite so deeply uh, engaged with China economically in particular. At the same time, 
the economic engagement has not precluded the United States from engaging in what is really uh, has to be described as a policy of military containment. We have attempted to ring China with alliances that we say are not aimed at China, but plainly are aimed at China. Um, so we have this dualist policy toward China that is part containment and part engagement. And in the paper, I really push on that and worry that there, that contradiction uh, could lead to some, some painful developments down the road. The idea of engagement and containment as simultaneous goals, could that look like something akin to making many of the problems of Asia, at least military problems like North Korea, more China's problem and less the problem of the United States? Well, in a different world, sure. So China is becoming relatively more powerful, um, but the United States is investing continually more deeply militarily in Asia. So what I argue really is the problematic contradiction is that um, the economic engagement has the effect of narrowing the relative power gap between the United States and China. So the United States is still much wealthier than China, but it's relatively less wealthy than China than it was 10 or 20 years ago. So the engagement of the policy, and that has a ton of positive consequences. It's lifted tens of millions of Chinese uh, just in recent years out of the most abject, horrible poverty. Um, it has produced some political opening in China, although certainly not enough for people of my orientation, but it is not China of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, that exists today. But the United States is still terribly unwilling to afford China a larger security role in East Asia. So what I argue in the paper is that the economic engagement part of the policy, in fact, makes the, the military containment side of the policy much more expensive over time. Now, it's always possible, and you have to put this massive hedge into any discussions of China, it's possible that China's economy could collapse tomorrow, next year, in three years, in which case all of this discussion would sort of be a moot point and we would be worrying about a whole host of different issues. But people have been predicting China's implosion for over a decade now, and it's yet to materialize. So the basic gist of the paper is predicated on the idea uh, that China's growth will continue, although not at a rate comparable to the rate that it's been at for the past 10 or so years. But if China's growth continues at a 7 or 8% annual rate, um, it's going to close the relative power gap with the United States, and that containment aspect of the policy is going to get harder over time. So what I advocate in the paper is simply allowing states in Asia to pick up a larger share of the burden of dealing with potential uh, Chinese expansionism or aggression. So you'll hear a lot of formulations in town about how desperately the United States needs Japan or how the United States needs to deepen its relationship with the Philippines or with Vietnam. And I argue that that gets the, the, the relationship backwards. Japan needs the United States much more than the United States needs Japan. Vietnam needs the United States much more than the United States needs Vietnam, and so on with the Philippines, with India, etc. But this has turned into a very much U.S.-China relationship with other countries acting as bit players. So I say that that's basically backward, and that other countries whose combined GDP at present is much larger than China's um, can deal with the most uh, 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 the worst 
potential Chinese acts in terms of security issues and military issues. Um, and that the United States, if China went on a Hitler-esque rampage across Asia, which I think is terribly unlikely, the United States should act as an offshore balancer and could come in to restore the balance, God forbid, if that ever needed to take place. But we've got things just backward. So we look at ourselves as the balancer of first resort with small bid contributions to be offered by countries in the region who, in fact, have more at stake. So getting that relationship backwards put the U puts the U.S. taxpayer on the hook for a much larger share of the burden. And that's one of the main goals of the paper is to break that idea apart and to show that countries in the region need us more than we need them. And we would profit from playing a little bit harder to get. I guess then... Uh with respect to the foreign policy establishment within DC, what drives their what drives then the disconnect between your expectations about uh, what China will be doing in the next fifty years uh, and theirs? Right. It's a really good question, actually, and I think part of the, the the problem when I make this argument to people in the foreign policy establishment in town. Um, it's sort of avoided. It's waved off as, well, no, 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 no. The world won't look like that. It won't get to that point without anyone directly engaging the idea that the policy itself is contradictory. So one historical uh, fact possibly of interest is uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, a, a, a Republican foreign policy hand here in town um, who worked for us in Afghanistan and in Iraq, wrote a paper at the Rand Corporation with a team of other scholars in the late 1990s called uh, flatly Congage China. So that's C-O-N-G-A-G-E, Congage. And the idea, again, was that you contain it and engage it. And, and I read this paper and thought, gosh, this is, you know, riven with contradiction. And so, again, I've made this argument repeatedly to people, and I think part of the reason that there's such confusion about what exactly the pivot is, is because people have not reconciled this idea about having a very fruitful uh, and positive economic relationship with China that makes attempting to contain it militarily more difficult. And people don't – and look, it's not a nice choice for a lot of security analysts in Washington to have to make. So nobody wants to say, all right, well, to hell with this engagement business. Let's cut off economic ties with China because that looks really terrible on a lot of levels, on an economic level, obviously. But even for security purposes, that looks really bad beyond the fact that you're definitely not going to be able to get other countries – be it Europe or even potentially countries in Asia, going along with an economic containment policy of China. That ship has left. It is not <laughs> coming back. But on the other hand, people are very much wedded to the idea of a U.S.-centered Asian order hemming in China militarily. So when you say, guys, it's hard to have both of those ideas robust economic relationship that's helping narrow the relative power gap on the one hand, and a military policy that's aimed at encircling China and hemming it in militarily, that that's contradictory. People just don't like squaring up to that contradiction for reasons that I think are understandable. But that's part of the problem with the pivot uh, and the fact that people don't 
get their heads around exactly what it is, is because reconciling the contradiction that's there either leads you to the extraordinarily unappetizing and unpopular position of saying, well, it would really be better if we didn't have a big economic relationship with China on the one hand, or by saying, you know, we should just sort of back away from the region, let other actors in the region take care of themselves, which as anybody who follows Cato's foreign policy work knows, is unfortunately very unpopular in this town. We fancy ourselves um, the sort of givers of uh, goodness and light to the world militarily. And the idea um, that we ought not to be doing that in a given region is just very hard for a lot of people here in town to get their heads around. Justin Logan is director of the Cato Institute's Foreign Policy Studies. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.